Welcome once again to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. If you woke up this morning, you woke up to the middle of what now appears to be a Marxist revolution. I don't say that in a cavalier fashion. I don't take it lightly. This is serious stuff. There's times for joking, and even in this, you can still have some humor, but make no mistake, uh, there are big things happening, earth-shattering things. What I've been warning about for the last year on this podcast is coming to fruition before our eyes. And I have a sense in me that you know I wasn't going to do a podcast today, but this may be one of the more important podcasts that I've ever done. I know a lot of you who have listened from the beginning know that I've made the argument many times that we're not dealing with a political movement purely or a religious movement purely. We're dealing with a political religion. And the evidence is all around us right now. This is a new religion and it parrots the gospel. It's actually a false gospel. It's gotten into Christianity, and it's gotten into other religions, and it's also gotten into secular voluntary associations like knitting clubs, (laughs) the Boy Scouts, your gardening club, critical theory, intersectionality, ultimately Marxist ideas, new left ideas, the new left critique of America is now the orthodox opinion you must hold. For many. I'm going to try to explain this as best I can, but what I am intending to do with this video is to educate you so you can go and talk to your friends and your family. I'm not asking you and I'm not telling you to go to battle on social media. That, that may be a, a fruitless pursuit or it may, for you, maybe you're good at that kind of thing. I am wanting to give you some resources and some some thoughts to help you understand this and to help you communicate the issues with it to those in your family, especially those who call themselves Christians. And, you, you know, we may have some success with some and you may not get far with others. That's just the reality. But when you have a false gospel, you have to refute it and you have to present a true gospel. So I'm going to explain what's going on because this is not something that happened because of logical arguments, primary source, exegesis, (laughs) historiography, hermeneutics, rational comprehension, discussion, debate. None of those things factor factor into this. This is emotional. And you need to understand that from the beginning, which is why if you're going to fight this, I suggest face-to-face interaction is the best thing. Uh, Rather than jumping on someone's thread, uh, which you are perfectly fine to do, but you're going to get farther, I think, if there is a human interaction. We are a world now of optics and fashion, not logic and reason. We just need to accept this. Truth is not found through logic and reason. It is found through optics and fashion. That is how people think. Welcome to postmodernism. My generation, the generation under me, that is how they approach just about everything, which is part of the reason I'm making a video instead of writing a blog about this. Not that it's wrong to write a blog. I think that's important. But 
Tone factors into a lot of this. Image factors into a lot of this. This, this whole uh, scenario that we're, we're watching right now was sparked by videos, the Arbery video especially, and then the George Floyd video. And in, in both cases, and I, I'm not going to beat a dead horse, but there's no evidence that racism factored into any of these things. None whatsoever. You can't prove it. <laughs> and, you know, I pointed out before that if you're a Christian, the, there, there really is no biblical category for a hate crime anyway. But even if there was, there's no hate crime here that can be proven. Every profession has bad apples in it. In fact, if you want to run the statistics and look at the numbers from um, police departments and federal numbers, you'll find that the systemic oppression that's being alleged, uh, that the police uh, harbor, and that uh, I guess white people in general harbor, is a myth. It doesn't come out when you actually start running the numbers. But this isn't about numbers. This is about narrative, and it's about optics. So you have friends of yours right now. I've, I've gotten a lot of these messages that you never would have expected to become woke or even political, perhaps. And now they're lamenting their whiteness. They're lamenting uh, systemic oppression in the United States. They're issuing ultimatums that you must do the same, trying to... To, to bring some guilt out of you and some, some la lamentation of some kind. And they're in many cases, they're standing in solidarity with looters, with thieves, with those advocating violence and a revolution. And you don't know what to do about it. Just remember, they saw a video and they've been conditioned, if they're of my generation or those below me especially, they've been conditioned through an educational system and an entertainment system in this country to hate this country from the foundation of it all the way to the present. They believe if you peel the onion back, what you'll find at the heart is white supremacy and oppression. Oppression against women in the form of patriarchy, oppression against minorities in the form of whiteness, oppression uh, against... Uh, sexual minorities, as they will call them, in the form of heterosexual privilege. And the list goes on. This is the world that we live in now. The people that you are interacting with have been guided. They've been conditioned into this. And you're not going to be able to probably convince them out of it with a tweet or a Facebook message. It's a good start but you're probably going to have to have some one-to-one, face-to-face interaction. And I want to help you do that. I want to help you think through that. But we need to understand it first. And so I'm, I'm going to start here. This is the formation, guys, of a new religion. And I, I realize that probably your pastors haven't been talking about this. Your churches aren't aware of this um, in the probably 95% of cases. Uh, this Christian um, magazines and publications that you follow have not really said much about this, but that's exactly what's been happening. And it's been happening for years and it's been happening right under their nose. Some of them have known about it and have chosen to remain silent. Others, I think this is the majority of people, have no clue what's really going on. And they haven't taken the time to really think about it. And, um, and so we're going to think about it. 
So I, I put this out there uh, now over a year ago, how social justice parallels the gospel and how social justice contradicts the gospel. This is from, I believe, January or February of 2019 that I put this out on my blog. And I sat down and I really thought through this. Now, I come at this as someone who has degrees from both secular and Christian institutions. I've been noticing this for the last 15 years. The difference between the two is that in Christian institutions, there's a veneer of Christianity, which makes it not quite as aggressive, but it's the same exact poison that you're going to get at a secular university. It just is. And it's a false gospel. So here's the poison. The poison is that white male straight privilege is original sin. Number one, you don't have to do anything evil, but if you are in one of these categories, you have a stain of racism, sexism, or homophobia that you need to get rid of. So why you hear Al Mohler say things like this, there's a stain of racism that won't ever go away till heaven. It's because it's attached to one of these categories. It's the denomination you're part of. It's the, the home that you run. It's the kind of medical care that you receive. It's everything about your life. If you are white, male, or straight, you have a benefit. You have privilege, and you need to absolve yourself of this sinful privilege. Political correctness is the new law, the do's and the don'ts, what you can say, what you can't say. Being woke is like being born again, coming to this awareness. And now you see things differently. You realize you're part of systemic oppression. Liberal politics are the sacraments. Woke leaders are the priests. There's a new canon of books you need to read now from sociologists. That's the new scriptures. Equality is heaven on earth. That's, or equity is the word they're using now. It's a materialist heaven here on earth. And I hear Christians say, well, we can use the critical race theory critique as an analytical tool, but we don't accept critical race theory, of course, because it's materialist, it's Marxist. Well, the telos, in other words, the destination, the point of critical race theory is to form a materialist heaven on this earth. You can't have both. You, got, you will serve one or you will serve the other. You cannot serve God, God of the Bible, and critical race theory at the same time. It will not work. Social justice also contradicts the gospel because the focus is on external behavior instead of heart condition. Now, of course, Christians try to smuggle in the heart condition and say that, of course, we understand that systemic oppression, there's a heart condition behind that somewhere. But it's, the, the direction is wrong. It starts with external behavior. The, um, the, the groups that are analyzed are certain classes of people instead of individuals. So individuals are complicit insofar as they are members of a certain class of people. That's not biblical. Sanctification precedes justification. You got to do something in order to have reconciliation, true reconciliation. You got to do A, B, and C, usually quotas, global curriculum, ripping down something historical, um, some kind of affirmative action, you know, reparations. There's got to be something you do, and then you can have reconciliation. See, that's the cart before the horse. Power. <laughs> Power. Perpetual repentance instead of justification. So instead of Christ forgiving you, and once for all, you're forgiven. He has taken that burden of sin. That is the good news of the gospel. You didn't have to do anything. This is what God did for you. Instead, 
you have to get on the hamster wheel of perpetually gaining grace and repentance because you will never get there if you are part of an oppressed tradition category culture. It just won't happen. And so the power of the gospel is gone. And the power of your ability to absolve yourself of your own sin is what you believe in now. And boy, people are tired. Like, like the priests in, in Hebrews, they're tired of, exhausted of trying to get rid of the sin that they carry with them because Christ hasn't taken care of it. This is a different gospel, guys. You need to realize this. When you see your friends tweeting what they're tweeting, posting what they're posting, and I'm going to take you through the steps here. This is what I see happening with your friends right now. This is what explains it, all right? Number one, they get woke. They have a salvation experience. This is, remember, a new religion. So they come to an understanding of systemic oppression, whether that's through an article or a video or a book, and they realize how complicit they are in a system that results in their privilege. So whether it be the medical treatment that they receive, whether it be the kinds of foods they eat, uh, the kind, the loan that they got for their house, um, the kind of church they go to, where they live, everything about their life comes back to fundamentally a privilege of some kind that's benefiting them. It's not the Lord who's blessing them. Remember, this is a different religion. It's not the Lord who is is through providence blessing them with the things that are good in their life. It's actually something horrible. It's this whiteness that is benefiting them, this system that's benefiting them. And it's those in power and authority who have chosen to grant them, to allocate to them influence and financial resources and good educations, etc., while denying it from minorities, sexual minorities, um, in their minds, that's the word they use, and, and women, genders, etc. And so what you have is, this is where the Marxism starts coming out. You have oppressed and you have oppressors, and the system is rigged. You can't point to a law in the system, right? You can't say, well, presently on the books, there's a law that specifically discriminates and says that these people that have this white skin get a certain level of education and financial help for it when these people of this color of skin don't get that because of their color of skin. You don't see that anywhere on the books. If anything, you see affirmative action, which is actually the reverse of that. You see minorities have, other, have opportunities from the system. But what they're assuming is there's this invisible um, hand, so to speak, kind of like... You know, the, I, I'm, I'm playing off of Adam Smith's invisible hand in capitalism, but there's an invisible hand from the beginning of our country, preceding our country's history, going back to Europe, that its only intention is to help people that are straight white males and keep them in power. And it, it, it's through uh, families and how families have passed on their wealth to the next generation. It's, there, there's all sorts of ways that you're, you're getting this privilege allocated to you. So your friends have read something that's convinced them of this fact. It's not Lord blessing them. It's not his providence. It's evil. And then they've realized, number two, that they are complicit in this system 
because of that privilege. So they've benefited from all these things and they've never taken a stand against it. They've never lamented it. They've never tried to um, help those who are offended by it and hurting because of it. So they pay their taxes and live a, a simple life and benefit from the protection of the police. Uh, they, they haven't taken a stand against symbols of hate that in the minds of the, the leftists that, that are holding minorities of, of various kinds back. Don't think the Bible's not going to be thrown into this eventually, guys. You want to go to the ultimate book that has politically incorrect things in it? It's going to be ripped down real quick. So they, they've benefited from all these things, and they haven't taken a stand. And so they're part of the problem. So they come to this realization, they're part of the problem, and they take on sins that the Bible doesn't say are sins, and they apologize, essentially, for other people's sins. I'm going to explain this more in a minute, but that's what they're doing. That's what they're going through. So the next step is they repent of it. They own their privilege. They take responsibility for their supposed sin. So they stop supporting whiteness. That's the putting off of the old man, right? According to scripture, that would be like the, you're going to put away the deeds of darkness. Well, they, they stop supporting whiteness. Right? We're not going to support perhaps the police anymore like we did, or we're not going to support uh, cultural icons, um, symbols, uh, figures, uh, like you know, maybe a George Washington or a George Whitfield or a Robert E. Lee, or uh, moving into the present, perhaps um, even you know some of the the former presidents, like an Eisenhower. Or um, believe me, I've seen these kinds of things where they 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 come right right to the edge of like the 1980s and they start lamenting everything that happened before that. And we can't have those images here. We can't uh, we can, we can't hold any of these men up as heroes. And then they participate in lamenting and raising awareness. That's the, the new ordinances like communion or baptism. These are the, the rituals, the civic rituals. We must all lament on social media. And if you don't do it, there's a pressure. Believe me, there's a pressure. If you're silent and you just want to be neutral, you will not be allowed to be neutral any longer. You must lament and you must raise awareness. You must go evangelize for this cause. And you need to find forgiveness then from the oppressed people. Those are the new priests. Those who are oppressed have a special um, dispensation of grace upon them, and they're able to grant you grace if you will go to them and apologize for not your sin, but the sin of your people in which you are complicit. It's very unbiblical, and is, it is completely antithetical to the biblical gospel. Here's step uh, three in this whole process, and I've sort of already touched on it, but you shame others, right? That's part of the evangelism. You promote a press perspective. So those are the new holy books. Hey, gotta go read Jamar Tisby, Color of Compromise. You need to read Eric Mason's Woke Church. You need to read Divided by Faith and whatever other books that they're promoting out there. And, and these books, I'm not a stranger to this. These, what these books do is they will start usually at the foundation of what America is and they or Europe. They might go beyond that. And then they will, it's like the 1619 Project. They say if you peel back all the layers, you're going to find white supremacy at the core. It's the foundation. It motivates everything. And they string examples along. They conveniently ignore things that don't fit their narrative. And they string together along every example they can think of. Sometimes they embellish. Sometimes they, um, they I've even seen where they start making things up. That sometimes happens. And then other times they pick completely legitimate examples of a type of racism or white supremacy. But it's all in this one bag. 
and it's fundamental. It motivates everything about the United States of America and the Western world, etc. And so they're going to read these things. And remember, you have an, a generation of people that don't know history now. Two generations, really. They have not been taught history. And this is going to fill that void. The vacuum is filled by reading one of those books. And once that happens, it, it's over for most of these guys. And every authority in their life, usually their pastor, uh, their, their Christian leaders that they look to, and beyond that, the, those voices in academia, those voices in politics, they're saying the same thing. They're all in unison. And they're saying, this is the perspective. You need these oppressed perspectives. You're not capable of understanding these issues of even the looting going on right now unless you have an oppressed perspective. So it's postmodern as well. And then they start making ultimatums, and that is the new catechism. And I'm going to go into this a little more later, but... Unless you denounce certain things or support certain things, you are not part of the in-group. You are not accepted in respectable society. New ultimatums. And of course, if you aren't respectable in, in, in society, then this is where church discipline comes in. You are kicked out. Not because you sinned in violation of the word of God or you did something actually morally wrong, but because you failed to meet their demands. I'm going to talk about this, guys. I'm going to talk about it, and I hope you, you have a listening ear. You may need to listen to this episode a few times. I'm going to talk about what's going on right now, and I'm going to relate it to what I just talked about. And I'm going to hopefully give you some answers, some tools for navigating discussions that you're likely already having with friends and family. I want you to watch this and ask yourself, does this describe the attitude that you're seeing in some of your friends right now who are now just recently getting woke. Excuse me. Hey, excuse me. I work for Black Lives Matter. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I work for Black Lives Matter. I'm sorry that I scared you. But since I work for that company, my CEO has told me to come out today and to bring you on your knees because you have white privilege. So if they see that a white person is getting on their knees, that shows solidarity for it the situation the situation and could you just please apologize for you know for your white privilege just apologize I am I'm trying to think of the right words to say because that's a that's a big thing to say it's it's big it comes from it's so it's large in this country I'm incredibly incredibly sorry you know with this country we have that president Donald Duck that clown in office you know he's brought a lot of bigotry and you're not a part of it right no. And so, you know, Thank just you Okay, you have a great day. A woman uh, who was descendant of some Europeans of some kind walking down the street and a man comes up to her and tells her that she needs to kneel down and she needs to essentially lament her whiteness and apologize for Donald Trump. And you can tell she's frightened but she's also willing to do it. And this is, this is where we're going. Now, how much of what you're seeing with your friends is motivated by fear? I don't know. But for some, it is fear. They can tell that the current seems to be moving in this direction and they want to be on the right side of it. 
How about this example? It's a little different, but watch this. Here you have a church, it looks like, approaching a protest of some kind. They kneel down in the direction of the protesters. It looks like possibly like a Black Lives Matter protest. They're kneeling down towards the protesters and they're praying, but their prayer is not just directed at God. Their prayer is directed to those right in front of them. So I told you earlier that there are, there's a new class of priests, the, those who carry the oppressed perspective, and they are apologizing for what he terms systematic, systemic is probably what he meant, racism. Systematic racism is what he says he's, they're repenting of. So again, it's a, it's a church that mainly comprised of people descended from Europeans, um, kneeling down uh, to an audience that is comprised of those who are descendant from people from Africa and from, from Europe, clearly. Uh, some of them are mixed in that way. And they are apologizing to them because of the color of their skin. I'd like to play for you a clip from C.S. Lewis on the dangers of national repentance. It's about six and a half minutes long, but I think it's very important. Listen closely to it, if you would, and I will explain why I played it after. The idea of national repentance seems, at first sight, to provide such an edifying contrast to that national self-righteousness of which England is so often accused, and with which she entered, or is said to have entered, the last war, that a Christian naturally turns to it with hope. Young Christians especially, last-year undergraduates and first-year curates, are turning to it in large numbers. They are ready to believe that England bears part of the guilt for the present war, and ready to admit their own share in the guilt of England. What that share is, I do not find it easy to determine. Most of these young men were children, and none of them had a vote or the experience which would enable them to use a vote wisely when England made many of those decisions to which the present disorders could plausibly be traced. Are they perhaps repenting what they have in no sense done? If they are, it might be supposed that their error is very harmless. Men fail so often to repent their real sins that the occasional repentance of an imaginary sin might appear almost desirable. But what actually happens, I have watched it happening, to the youthful national penitent, is a little more complicated than that. England is not a natural agent, but a civil society. When we speak of England's actions, we mean the actions of the British government. The young man who is called upon to repent of England's foreign policy is really being called upon to repent the acts of his neighbour. For a foreign secretary or a cabinet minister is certainly a neighbour. And repentance presupposes condemnation. The first and fatal charm of national repentance is, therefore, the encouragement it gives us to turn from the bitter task of repenting our own sins to the congenial one of bewailing, but first of denouncing, the conduct of others. If it were clear to the young penitent that this is what he is doing, no doubt he would remember the law of charity. Unfortunately, the very terms in which national repentance is recommended to him conceal its true nature. 
By a dangerous figure of speech, he calls the government not they, but we. And since, as penitents, we are not encouraged to be charitable to our own sins, nor to give ourselves the benefit of any doubt, a government which is called we is, ipso facto, placed beyond the sphere of charity or even of justice. You can say anything you please about it. You can indulge in the popular vice of detraction without restraint, and yet feel all the time that you are practicing contrition. A group of such young penitents will say, Let us repent our national sins. What they mean is, Let us attribute to our neighbor, even our Christian neighbor, in the cabinet, whenever we disagree with him, every abominable motive that Satan can suggest to our fancy. Such an escape from personal repentance into that tempting region, where passions have the privilege to work and never hear the sound of their own names, would be welcome to the moral cowardice of anyone. But it is doubly attractive to the young intellectual. When a man over forty tries to repent the sins of England and to love her enemies, he is attempting something costly, for he was brought up to certain patriotic sentiments which cannot be mortified without a struggle. But an educated man who is now in his twenties usually has no such sentiment to mortify. In art, in literature, in politics, he has been, ever since he can remember, one of an angry and restless minority. He has drunk in, almost with his mother's milk, a distrust of English statesmen, and a contempt for the manners, pleasures, and enthusiasms of his less educated fellow countrymen. All Christians know that they must forgive their enemies. But my enemy primarily means the man whom I am really tempted to hate and traduce. If you listen to young Christian intellectuals talking, you will soon find out who their real enemy is. He seems to have two names, Colonel Blimp and the Businessman. I suspect that the latter usually means the speaker's father, but that is speculation. What is certain is that in asking such people to forgive the Germans and Russians and to open their eyes to the sins of England, you are asking them not to mortify, but to indulge their ruling passions. I do not mean that what you are asking them is not right and necessary in itself. We must forgive all our enemies or be damned. But it is emphatically not the exhortation which your audience needs. The communal sins which they should be told to repent are those of their own age and class. It's contempt for the uneducated, it's readiness to suspect evil, it's self-righteous provocations of public obloquy, it's breaches of the fifth commandment. Of these sins I have heard nothing among them. Till I do, I must think their candor towards the national enemy a rather inexpensive virtue. If a man cannot forgive the Colonel Blimp next door, whom he has seen, how shall he forgive the dictators whom he has not seen? Is it not then the duty of the Church to preach national repentance? I think it is. But the office, like many others, can be profitably discharged only by those who discharge it with reluctance. We know that a man may have to hate his mother for the Lord's sake. The sight of a Christian rebuking his mother, though tragic, may be edifying. But only if we are quite sure that he has been a good son, and that, in his rebuke, spiritual zeal is triumphing, not without agony, over strong natural affection. The moment there is reason to suspect that he enjoys rebuking her, that he believes himself to be rising above the natural level, while he is still, in reality, groveling below it in the unnatural, the spectacle becomes merely disgusting. The hard sayings of our Lord are wholesome to those only who find them hard. 
There is a terrible chapter in Monsieur Mauriac's Vie de Jésus. When the Lord spoke of brother and child against parent, the other disciples were horrified. Not so Judas. He took to it as a duck takes to water. Pourquoi cette stupeur? se demande Judas. Il aime dans la Christ cette vie simple, ce regard de Dieu sur l'horreur humaine. For there are two states of mind which face the dominical paradoxes without flinching. God guard us from one of them. Now here's why I wanted you to listen to that. Not only because C.S. Lewis can articulate it better than I can, but because history rhymes. Lewis is talking about a time in England's history when young people, before actually it's during World War II, are apologizing for the complicity of the politicians and the businessmen in their country uh, in the decisions which they made which led to what was happening in Europe at that time. And they're saying that these decisions in which they really had no part are the fault of their parents and their grandparents and they kind of in a fake way take personal responsibility to this by using the pronoun we. By saying we apologize when in reality they're actually apologizing for what they consider to be the sins of others, of their parents, of their grandparents, of businessmen, of politicians. So it shouldn't give someone pleasure to do a, an apology. It shouldn't give them a buzz or think that they are morally superior or more righteous because they are the ones that are apologizing. But that's what was happening. Do you see the parallel? It's exactly what's happening today. These apologies are weaponized apologies. They are, they're actually very similar to what you see uh, in Luke 18.11, when the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed and he said, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. That's the effect of these apologies. Because what they're essentially saying is, Oh, I'm so sorry. It's a fake humility. I'm so sorry for, for this white supremacy that I have for the horrible things that I've done, when in reality, they're using the we as white people across time and space. And they're saying, I'm apologizing for what others have done and my complicity in what others have done. But ultimately, it's the others. And then if you don't apologize, if you don't participate in that apology, well, you just aren't morally righteous. So they get to virtue signal about how morally righteous they are, that they understand their privilege. They understand the sin that they've committed. And meanwhile, it's hanging people like you out to dry because you don't perhaps feel like you have anything to apologize for. You haven't committed any violence or said anything hateful in the name of racism. And if, if you have, then perhaps you've made it right. And once you've made it right with the person that you've actually sinned against, then it's over. You, you're, you are forgiven at that point. Um, the, the people that are apologizing in these group apologies, are, they're not after that. They're, they're not after actual forgiveness that's going to say, we're done. And, and no reason to apologize anymore. Uh, this group of people over here is now reconciled to this group of people over here. It won't happen. They're not after something that's actually effective to take away sin and that, that will last perpetually. They're after something that will, in the moment, give them political superiority and a sense of self-righteousness and throw those under the bus who aren't willing to own their privilege. 
That's what's going on here. And you know, you, you'll get blowback sometimes from people who will say, hey, the Bible has national uh, repentance in it, doesn't it? It, it? it gives us a model for how to do this. And the reality is there are corporate apologies in the Bible, but I'm going to show you this chart. Remember this when everyone brings this up. Biblically speaking, national repentance is found throughout Scripture under these four conditions for present participation in actual sin by the actual perpetrators vertically to the Lord, resulting in forgiveness. That's what you find. In contrast, today's corporate apologies are for past wrongs by descendants horizontally to people perpetually. Remember that if someone tries to use, oh, Israel repented as a people for something. Start putting it through that grid and then compare it to the weaponized apologies that the really the left is trying to persuade those in the supposed majority culture to participate in. So I hope that was helpful on the corporate apologies. Now, I need to say this. We, all of us, if we look back in our history, if we start tracing back, go to Ancestry.com or something, we start looking back at our families, things get pretty complex pretty quick. I know for my, um, my ancestors, I, I have all kinds of people, people I wouldn't probably want to tell you about and people I'd be real, really proud of. But I know this. I have, in this country, in the United States of America, examples of oppression in my family and uh, Europe, I, I will say. Um, I, I, I trace back to the Reformation. I'm a direct descendant of John Knox. I trace back to the Radical Reformation in some ways. I mean, my family tree goes all over the place. The pilgrims who came to this country uh, included members of my own family. I'm a, I'm a descendant of uh, John Alden and Priscilla Mullins came over on the Mayflower. They were coming over because of religious persecution against them in England. Um, I have family that are Virginians. Uh, they came over uh, to Virginia as indentured servants, which at the time, you know, it's interesting, the 1619 Project likes to say, well, that was, a, that was when slavery started in this country. It was actually indentured servitude that they're referring to there. It was, it was pretty much the same kind of system, and it happened organically. But some of the members of my family are part of that. Um, more notably, perhaps, I have members of my family who were impoverished and pretty much burned out of their homes, poor as dirt for generations, because of what Sherman's army did in Mississippi. That affected all kinds of people, descendants from Africa, descendants from Europe. And I'm not asking for reparations because of any of that. I'm not out there asking that people, hey, was your great-great-great-great-grandfather in Sherman's army? You ought to apologize to me. Oh, you're British. Interesting. You know, my family was really persecuted by the British. You better get on your knees right now and apologize for that privilege. Um, oh, you're, you're from Virginia. Interesting. I wonder if uh, your great-great-great-great-grandfather um, had indentured servants. Because you know what? My family... Uh, we have indentured servants. Interestingly enough, with all the ways that you can trace my family heritage back, uh, my family history, we haven't found one slave owner. Not one. And supposedly, because I am white, I have to bear the full brunt of the sub-Saharan, the transatlantic slave trade. But your family, I'm sure, has 
similar things in the, in their background. And of course, I'm not being, I, I'm not looking at everything here. I'm sure there's more examples I could give. But if you look at your family's history, you're going to find examples of triumph. You're going to find examples of barriers that they overcame, of injustices that were done to them. What do you do about it now? What are you going to do about it? It's one of the problems with this revolution uh, that we're undergoing. It only looks at one particular narrative. And it only vilifies one particular group of people. And it is a Marxist revolution, make no mistake about it. This is a quote from Trevor Loudon a few days ago, who pretty much is the expert on Marxism, I'm convinced, in this country. And this is what he said. This is way bigger than Antifa. There, these are the shock troops, but there are 20 or more communist groups operating freely in the United States who engage in what they refer to as anti-fascist militant action. It was on May 31st he said that. I have seen several, and I, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to put them all up here, but I've seen several examples of people saying on news, among protesters on Twitter, saying things like, this is the first step. Uh, it didn't work when we put minority people in positions of power because they just became complicit with the system. The problem is the system. And you know what the word they keep using that I keep hearing? Capitalism. This is a Marxist revolution. Look at, look at this. This is just one little example. I'm sure you're seeing things on your, your news feed. This is Jory Micah, who's a, supposedly a, a, you know, a Christian leader. And she, she uh, posts this um, from Davy D., uh, she says, this is truth, 100%. I got to be honest, the worst looting I've ever seen take place happened a few years ago when corporations collected over $500 billion in stimulus money while everyone else was left with a $1,200 check and having to decide if they pay for food or rent. Now look, I am not for corporate bailouts at all. I'm not for what happened there. But you know what? What she's, what she's doing there? She's trying to... to, to gets you to think that you are on the short side of it. You have the, the short side of the stick. It's the corporations that they're, they're benefiting so much, and you should be pretty resentful of them. In the context of everything that's happening now, I mean, he's, he's, making, he's taking a shot at, uh, at, I mean, look what he says. He's talking about looting. He said, that's what looting is. No, no, that's socialism. <laughs> on a mini scale. That's not looting. That's not going to someone's actual business and then breaking windows down. And, and look, you know, th this is, <laughs> this reminds me, I'm going to just say it. I'm just going to say it because it's, it's true. This reminds me more of like Kristallnacht. This is, I mean, I've, how many civil, quote unquote, civil rights leaders have you seen saying things like, be careful of damaging black businesses? So, so what they're saying is you can go damage someone else, I guess, an Asian, a Jewish, uh, someone who's you know, European in their descent. Their businesses, I guess, are fair game. Just don't, don't damage certain businesses. So they're, they're actually trying to discriminate here, trying to say that certain people, they're deserving of this. I mean, if you study Holocaust history, which I have, these are the kinds of things that were used to vilify Jewish people. They're complicit in this. They weren't representing the German people in World War I on the front lines. They have more political power. They have more power in business. It's unfair. Let's go damage their businesses. Tell me how this is so different than that. And these are the people 
that tell us that they're anti-fascist. They're anti-Nazi. No, they're not. <laughs> they're acting like it. They're acting like it. There are some on the conservative side of this that want to explain this as astroturf. Like these aren't really legitimate protests. These are just, you know, these are these are just these radical people in the minority, which I'm sure they are in the minority. But you know, they, there's just really not many of them, and, and they're paid for. George Soros is paying these people. He's putting bricks at different places so they can throw them, and that that all may be true. But I want you to challenge yourself when you hear that kind of thing. What are you seeing your friends say on social media? Your friends who you thought were solid. What are you hearing them say about their white privilege and about standing in solidarity perhaps with these protesters? Comparing it to the Tea Party, comparing it to Jesus driving uh, people outside the temple and overturning tables. What are you hearing from your friends? I don't think this is purely something that's bought and paid for. I think... This is exactly how some people feel. And we are reaping the, the result of 30 years of indoctrination in this country, in both colleges and even some high schools, that this place is, is evil from the beginning. We, we've just been oppressive, and we're all complicit if we're part of majority culture. That's what people believe. And once people are conditioned into that, you can use that to your advantage if you're on the left. You can create a revolution out of that because it's, it's motivated by resentment, by hatred. Um, let, let me read for you a verse. James chapter 3, starting in verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What are we seeing right now in our country? Is it wisdom from above or is it wisdom from below? If you can condition people into believing that critique, that new left understanding of America, you can combine that with jealousy and envy, and you can create the revolution that you want to create. And we are seeing it now. It is disorder. It is violence. And Christians, supposed Christians, are not in the business right now of condemning it. I'll tell you that much. In fact, I went over some of this uh, that I'm not going to share with you some of it, but um, I showed you that the Southern Baptist Convention made their statement, two days of looting, and all they had to say was how terrible racism, systemic racism in this country, and the unequal, inequitable distribution of justice was. The Ann campaign, even worse. Uh, this is Dallas Theological Seminary. I mean, these things are happening everywhere. We find ourselves reminded once again that racism is an ever-present sinful blight on creation. In recent months, we have witnessed racism led to the tragic and unjust deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. That's a lie. They can't prove it, that that was racist. Not to mention the numerous instances of the police being called on innocent black people for simply being black. Really, really, show, where are the examples of this? Our hearts break for all people who live under the constant ugly prejudices and injustices of racism. This is not God's way. We pray that our churches will do more to bring justice, equality, and healing to our land. 
Well, they could do that maybe first by standing against the looting, right? But yeah, you're not seeing so much of that. And if you do see it, it's, well, it's understandable. Here's someone who works for the North American Mission Board, Malcolm Griswold, and uh, in Detroit. So you're, if you're, again, I'm going to make this point again. If you are giving money to the cooperative program, if you are a Southern Baptist Convention churchgoer and you're giving your, from your offering, money is going to the cooperative program. Some of that money goes to the North American Mission Board and it winds up funding people like this guy. And here's, here's what he's doing. Marching because we believe in freedom, justice, and dignity for all people. But when these three things are denied, the peace, security, and stability of our nation will be at risk. Hmm. Peace, security, and stability. It's going to be at risk. Funded by your cooperative program giving, Southern Baptists. Wake up. <laughs> Wake up. This is what's happening around you. This is what's happening around you. Here are the two biggest uh, examples of justification that I've seen. This first one, this is uh, a student at the Southern, at S Southeastern, I should say, Baptist Theological Seminary, Matt Lee, and he posted this publicly. Destruction of property is not a valid form of protest. Jesus. <laughs> so, uh, so, so this is valid, what you're seeing. It's from someone who's going to probably graduate and maybe wind up as a pastor of a church somewhere in the Southern Baptist Convention. His education is being paid for, again, by your giving to the SBC. So congratulations on that if you're a Southern Baptist. And I don't mean to sound flippant about this, but this has been happening for a while, guys. There's, there's, there's old ladies who think that they're giving for the propagation of the gospel. Some of it probably does go to that, but you know where a lot of it's going now? People that think like this and are being programmed even more into this way of thinking. Let me tell you why this is a terrible, terrible meme. Because Jesus suffered more abuse at the hands of law enforcement than pretty much anyone else in history when he died on the cross. And what, was, what, what did he say during that time? He said, Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you really want to try to create a parallel, maybe you should go to that story. The story that they're using here about Jesus overturning the money changers, if you recall correctly, it's because the money changers were doing what? What were they doing in the temple? They were making it a place of business. Okay, but more specifically, they were stealing. They were stealing. They were jacking up prices, and they were stealing from people who were coming there because they wanted to worship the Lord. They were making it something profitable for them. They were pillaging them. And Jesus comes in and he doesn't, he, he, he chases them out and he overturns what they're doing, the, the tables on which they're committing the sin of stealing. If you want to try to draw a parallel, which I wouldn't recommend, but if you're going to try to do it, you should at least talk about those who are stealing right now and the police who are trying to stop them. The police are the ones in the temple that are with the, the, the bullwhip who are chasing out those who are stealing. That would be your parallel there. Instead, they've called evil good and good evil. They've flipped the roles. Jesus is now the one, apparently, who's the thief, who's the looter. <laughs> this makes no sense. This is someone who's training at a seminary, of all places, who thinks this. Here's one that went popular, and all, all sorts of Christians posting this one. 
the Boston Tea Party, the original riots from taxation without representation then to racism minorities in America face today. Why are white colonists who rioted for our independence called heroes and blacks fighting for social justice and equality called thugs? Now, first of all, the Sons of Liberty didn't go around Boston burning everything up. <laughs> That's number one. They weren't, uh, they actually were doing something more symbolic. They, were, they specifically went to the boat, the British boat with the British tea, and they were, they were actually protesting actual laws on the book, like the Townsend Acts. These, the, the folks that are protesting now all over the country, they don't have an actual law that they're, they're, that they're saying, that's the racist law, we need to go for that, we need to target that. Those who were protesting in Boston Harbor were protesting actual laws that were unjust, that were wrong, and they felt like they could prove it. They weren't hurting people, and they weren't damaging anything in Boston itself. They weren't on a rampage that was lawless. That being said, I want to say something very clear about this. I've actually, shoot me if you want, but I've never actually liked the Boston Tea Party, personally speaking. I don't see it as parallel with what we're seeing now. I think what we're seeing now is more like Kristallnacht. It, it is. That's what's going on. But that being said, I, I never even liked the name Tea Party because, to, to put it mildly, I don't think what they did was really right. They may have felt justified, and they did it in a more law and order type way, I guess. Uh, they felt like they were in the right, lawfully speaking, because it was the British who were breaking the law, and they felt uh, that it was orderly because they weren't causing violence or anything like that. They were just um, trying to get rid of the tea as a protest. I think it was still wrong. It wasn't their property, and they shouldn't have touched it. And if they were going to do it, they needed to compensate. But that's what's being flung around out there is that uh, that's, that's what's happening. It's the Boston Tea Party. No, it's not. No, no. Um, m many reasons why it's not. And it wouldn't surprise me um, that this would be used in that way because ultimately the people who are propagating this don't understand the history of the country in which they live. Not the full scope. Not a paradigm that explains everything. They understand one sliver. And that's why I think this is where it started. It started with, we have a horrible history. Here's some pictures for you if you're watching. Uh, this is uh, the National Mall. There's the World War II Memorial. Uh, they've you know, spray painted that. Do black vets count? Uh, there's right in front of the Lincoln Memorial. They've uh, spray painted that. There's another uh, memorial. I can't tell from the picture which one that is, but... Uh, spray painting all over that. Here they, um, the other night, burning American flags, taking them off buildings and historic churches and just burning them. Um, and of course, this is just a tip of the iceberg. I mean, they're doing that everywhere. Here's uh, Sarah Parsak, I think is how you pronounce it, an Egyptologist. So she's an academic and giving instructions on how to take down the Washington Monument. Here's how you do it. Hmm, that's great. That's great. We have... Uh, Professors, in the name of Black Lives Matter, by the way, we're going to take down the Washington Monument. And then you have this. Then you have the Southern Monument as a case study. And I, I want to start here because I, I really do think that conservatives in general, they gave up this fight a while ago, a few years ago, when <clears throat> Confederate monuments started coming down. And of course, it wasn't just Confederate. There were other things coming down, too. Um, and there were other things threatened. You had murals of Washington. 
uh, in California, and there was outside of a church in Virginia. Let's got to take down Washington. Um, McKinley, statues of McKinley, Lewis and Clark statues. Uh, I know one of those is under attack right now in Charlottesville. Um, I know the Vietnam Memorial in Charlottesville. They want to take off the name Vietnam. Uh, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on. And so, um, but it started primarily with the Confederate monuments. And I, I told you in the last episode, you can go watch it. I, 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 drew, I drew my line there. I said, no, if we, if we do this, it all ends. And it's exactly what I said a few years ago. And I hate being right about this. But the conservatives are trying desperately now to, well, how do we preserve the founding history and other history while demonizing you know, Southerners and Confederates and now bleeding into the founding fathers. We can demonize some, but we want to keep it. You can't. You're not going to be able to make the argument. You're going to find problems, things that are problematic to the woke crowd in every part of our history, and it's all coming down. That's just the reality. Uh, it's like if you give a moose a muffin, man, they're going to take a lot more than just a muffin. And so here's, here's how... Um, here, here's in... Richmond, a Robert E. Lee statue, America KKK, A, uh, cops are weird, yeah, all sorts of things written on that. You think the people writing on this are thinking, well, we are very we're nuanced, we just think Lee, he fought for a, a, a bad uh, cause and so we should take him down, but we'll leave everything else up. No, they're saying America is this, America is the problem, cops are the problem, it's all of this, that's what they're saying, it's part of one big story. And we have, um, on May 31st, the Lincoln Project. So we already have rioting starting, right? We have disregard for the law in this country. And this is, this is what a supposed Republican group, I don't think they're Republican, this is a front. Um, they put out this ad. No patriotic American should brandish or proudly celebrate the iconography of a rebellion that resulted in tremendous devastation, the loss of more than... 620,000 American lives and the continued subjugation of black America. That's, that's the narrative they're putting out there. And they're going to force Trump, or try to, to uh, denounce the Confederate battle flag. You need to, this piece of cloth is the problem, apparently. Not the rioting and the looting you're seeing, it's this piece of cloth. And, and why isn't Trump doing it? I, remember I told you at the beginning of this episode, there's a new catechism. There's a new list of rights and wrongs that you must affirm or deny. And they're forming it right now. The, these are the gatekeepers. You won't be able to get into positions of authority unless you do as they say. And you need to denounce this. And you think if Trump denounces that, they're not going to have another thing that he needs to denounce? Oh, the list is going to get bigger. Trust me on this. Here's, a, here's an interesting part. I'm just going to give you some food for thought about this. Here's some quotes um, from Abraham Lincoln. And again, I, I talked about this in my last podcast. I don't want Lincoln canceled. But here's what Lincoln said. Just, just two things. I could have put more here, but I have no purpose, directly or indirectly, to interfere with the institution of slavery in the United States where it exists. I believe I have no lawful right to do so, I have, and I have no inclination to do so. That means willingness, not willing to do it. 1861, that's his first inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln. This is right around the time when Congress is passing the Corwin Amendment. The Corwin Amendment enshrined slavery as a constitutional right. And it was supposed to be an appeal, in a sense, to the South, the lower South, and say, look, guys, uh, we're willing to make slavery a constitutional right. It can never be gotten rid of. And the South said, yeah, okay, <laughs> we're, we're seceding anyways, because that's the, the issue of the war itself. 
ultimately wasn't about that. If you're studying these things, you have to make distinctions between, uh, and, and if you read the first inaugural, you'll see what I'm saying. Lincoln's talking about the quote-unquote expansion of slavery into the Western territories. That was the issue. It was, a, it was representation. Who's going to influence these areas? That was the issue. It wasn't a big moral question of slavery, and though Lincoln and others tried to turn it into that, this big moral, moral play, but the political issue was about that. Lincoln here is here saying, I have no intention of in interfering with that. In fact, I'll sign the Corwin Amendment. We'll enshrine slavery as a constitutional right. That's why the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free any slaves in the South. <sighs> didn't free any slaves where Lincoln had authority to do it. Because he couldn't. And in the areas he did have authority, because there were areas in the Union where slavery was still legal at that time, it didn't free anyone in those areas. Not one slave. Emancipation Proclamation didn't do that. It was a strategic move to try to bring about a slave uprising in the South and get Great Britain from siding with the South because Great Britain hated slavery so much. It was a political move. And there was a lot of Northern generals very nervous that they would have um, a lot of deserters as a result of it. So they had to explain it in such a way that, hey, this isn't, we're not going to war. To, this is still preserving the Union. That's, that's our, our primary objective. Why do I bring this up? Why do, why do I talk about this? Because I think this whole new left critique, I think this whole, this, what we're watching, it started here. It started with taking down monuments, not to governments, but to soldiers who sacrificed for honor, for duty, for family, for hearth and home. And conservatives sat by and watched those men all get demonized and taken down and it's like they didn't even think that this kind of acid would eat the container it was in and start affecting everything else. It was started, um, and this is again Trevor Loudon's material, but it was that whole case study that we're talking about now where taking down Confederate statues started, it was started by the Workers' World Party. The Durham branch of the Workers' World Party responded, and this is from Trevor Loudon, to the need for direct action, especially after several of our comrades returned from Charlottesville, many still in shock from the traumatic events. We, we put out a call for militant action to our close comrades in Black Youth Project 100, Durham Beyond Policing, Southerners on New Ground, Industrial Workers of the World, and local Antifa. So this is from the Workers' World Pro uh, Party. Trevor Loudon quotes it. This is where this whole thing started, guys. These are communists we're dealing with, and we haven't wanted to play ball with them like they're communists. Here's another Lincoln quote. This is from 1858. I am not, here I'll actually pull it up for you. I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. That I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. I will add to this that I have never seen, to my knowledge, a man, a woman, or a child who was in favor of producing a perfect equality, social and political, between Negroes and white men. It's in 1858. It's two years before he was he won the election. That's Abraham Lincoln. This is the Lincoln Project trying to get Trump to uh, denounce this horrible icon iconography. How long is it going to be before another project says you need to denounce Lincoln? 
Just wondering. And who are they going after? Robert E. Lee. Let me show you a really short video of something that Robert E. Lee did after the war. It's a warm spring Sunday at St. Paul's Episcopal Church in Richmond. As the minister is about to present Holy Communion, a tall, well-dressed black man sitting in the section reserved for African Americans unexpectedly advances to the communion rail. Unexpectedly because this has never happened here before. And everyone paused. This was literally turning the heavens upside down for the Southerners. It was one thing for them to have lost the war. It was another thing for them to have had their country laid waste to, but for their very traditions to be turned upside down in their own homes or in their own churches, this was really too much. The congregation freezes. Those who have been ready to go forward and kneel at the communion rail remain fixed in their pews. The minister stands in his place stunned and motionless. The black man slowly lowers his body, kneeling at the communion rail. I mean, the war answered some things. It killed slavery. But what was left unanswered was how is the United States going to work out a biracial society? We are still struggling with that. After what seems an interminable amount of time, an older white man rises, his hair snowy white, head up, and eyes proud. He walks quietly up the aisle to the chancel rail. And he was a man who had only recently said, I am penniless and I am homeless, and I have nothing left to live for. Yet this was also a man who many Southerners looked to for guidance and for wisdom as to what to do next. So with silent dignity and self-possession, the white man kneels down to take communion along the same rail with the black man. It's an important public gesture to show that it's all over parishioners. And, and this is, this is part of the new world that we'll be living in. And when Robert E. Lee knelt down next to this black man with a sort of mixture of hope and expectation, he was saying, this is what the future of the United States should be. This is what our legacy of April 1865 should be. Lee has said he is rejoiced that slavery is dead. But this action indicates that those were not idle words meant to placate a Northern audience. Here among his people, he leads wordlessly through example. The other communicants slowly move forward to the altar with a mixture of reluctance and fear, hope and awkward expectation. In the end, America would defy the cruel chain of history besetting nations torn apart by civil war. You want racial reconciliation? This guy should be one of your heroes. If you can cancel Robert E. Lee, you can cancel anyone in this country's history. Let me show you what Robert E. Lee said. Here's what he wrote in 1856. There are few, I believe, in this enlightened age who will not acknowledge that slavery as an institution is a moral and political evil. It is idle to expatiate on its disadvantages. I think it is a greater evil to the white than the colored race. While my feelings are strongly enlisted in behalf of the latter, my sympathies are more deeply engaged for the former. The blacks are immeasurably better off here than in Africa, morally, physically, and socially. The painful discipline they are undergoing is necessary for their further instruction as a race and will prepare them, I hope, for better things. How long their servitude may be necessary is known and ordered by a merciful providence. Their emancipation will sooner result from the mild and melting influences of Christianity than from the storm and tempest of fiery controversy. This influence, though slow, is sure. The doctrines and miracles of our Savior have required nearly 2,000 years to convert but a small portion of the human race, and even among Christian nations, 
what gross errors still exist, while we see the course of the final abolition of human slavery is still onward and give it the aid of our prayers. Let us leave the progress as well as the result in the hands of him who chooses to work by slow influences and with whom a thousand years are but a single day. Now, the woke would not like aspects of that. Some of the terms he uses, I mean, he's not for immediatism. He's more of a gradualist when it comes to um, emancipation. In fact, if you read what Jonathan Edwards says about slavery, it's pretty similar uh, to what Robert E. Lee says. Uh, if you read um, even what Booker T. Washington says about the, this providential view of what God was trying to do through, I mean, it's like Joseph, what, what happened because of evil, what God was using to bring about good, people who were now being exposed to Christianity. And if you caught it in what I just read, Lee believed that it was inevitable that slavery would have to end because of Christianity. And we should pray for its abolition, ultimately. But the Lincoln Project wants to cancel that guy. He's a bad guy. We need to go graffiti up his monument. We need to, uh, we need to cast him out. He's a bad, bad guy. But Lincoln still has a, a stature of some kind. Why? Why is that? And I'm not for canceling either one. They're both part of our history. But why the arbitrariness? You need to start asking yourself this, this question. Why are some heroes promoted? Why is MLK so promoted as almost like to a demigod type status? I mean, I'm sure a lot of your friends on social media right now who are getting caught up in this, they're using MLK quotes. It's almost like the, the whiter you are, the more you'll use an MLK quote for some reason in these circumstances. Um, when, when does he get canceled? Participating in orgies? Um, I mean, running around on his wife all over the place? I mean, does that stuff, I mean, is the Me Too movement going to run over him? Why is it arbitrary? And at what point do the current heroes get canceled? This is an acid. You guys need to realize it's a new religion and it's an acid that eats everything away. And you just give it some time to do so, and it, and it will happen. So why aren't conservatives fighting? Why did they give up uh, initially in around 2017, really 2015, I would say? Why did they just abandon, we're not going to defend these monuments. You can trash them. You do whatever you want. I think there, there's a few things. I think conservatives tend to have a high regard for hierarchy and responsibility. I remember when I was at Southeastern, there was a professor there who was concerned about what was happening on campus. And I was in his office, we closed the door, and he said to me, John, if I were to share my actual opinion about what's going on, mostly what Kingdom Diversity is promoting on campus, I would be fired. Someone who'd been there for a while. And the advice he gave me was essentially just to, to run in the lane that God had for me, which is actually good advice, that as a student, I should only focus on studies. And there's really nothing else. And, and I think, in a sense, he was right. But here's the fact of the matter. He didn't really fight this stuff. Not hard, at least. I'm not saying he may have had similar conversations with others, but he was very careful. Did not want to lose his job. Did not want to make a big stink. And I know many professors who are like this. 
And it, they, what they think is that they have a specific responsibility and it's to teach a certain subject or it's to have a certain job and to fulfill responsibilities. And, and for the most part, I think that's correct. But we're in the middle of a revolution right now. And it's not caused by people who are respecting order and authority and hierarchies. No, these are people that want to tear it all down and create a new order and a new hierarchy. I think conservatives end up getting stuck in their lane. And I think a lot of it, all, honestly, a lot of it also is cowardice. It is much easier to keep your head down and, and do your job than to speak out against this stuff. And I don't think we, as conservatives and as Christians, I don't think we're supposed to be necessarily political activists in the sense that the left is a political, they tend to be political activists. But I do think you're supposed to guard authority and the true and valuable things in your traditions and in your culture. Because if they are ripped down, I'm telling you what's coming next. The Bible's going to be ripped down. Churches will be ripped down. Crosses will be ripped down. And we've already, we've already given them the logic by which to do it. But, you know, there used to be a lot of sympathy uh, for the Dust Bowl people. You know, the, those who, who were victims of, of Sherman's March and those who were, uh, both, you know, black and white, didn't really matter. Those who just were, were impoverished, especially in the South, who moved to other areas, tried to find work in places like Detroit or moved out to Bakersfield, California, and started a community. These were people that country music appealed to. They're the Dust Bowl people. They're, the, they're impoverished, they're poor, and they had their own unique culture. And Hollywood and the entertainment media, I mean, they, Jimmy Carter campaigned to these guys. I mean, they were heroes. They were looked on as, you know, be, they had a, a rich cultural heritage because of their poverty. And, and, um, and there, there were many movies, there were many songs, there just, it, they were celebrated in many ways. Those days are gone. Because intersectionality has created a world in which you're not allowed to think of them as victims. Especially if they had, if they had any skin that looks like my skin. They can't be victims because intersectionality says it's the color of your skin gives you a privilege. I know, uh, <laughs> I know my great-grandparents down in Mississippi, they didn't feel any privilege because of the color of their skin. I know how they lived. I've heard the stories. They were poor. They were sharecroppers. They were they were along with uh, along with people of different ethnicities right down the street from them. They were friends. They go fishing together. They were just trying to get by. One pair of shoes a year. I mean, look, they were in poverty that we can't imagine today. And they didn't have resentment towards this country. But they're no longer looked on favorably or with sympathy because they're no longer victims. No, the real victims are, you could be an NBA uh, basketball player making millions of dollars, but because your skin might be a certain color, you're a victim. It's absurd. It's insane. And what happens is, because now we've labeled certain groups as oppressors, it's kind of like uh, the way that, um, if you remember, for about like 10 years after 9-11, uh, and this was used even against Barack Obama. Anything that might have even smelled a little Muslim, conservatives would go right after it, like conservative talk radio and, and things of that nature. Because, look, there was a minority of Muslims that ended up committing terrorist acts. A minority. I'm not saying they weren't true to, the, to their interpretation of the Quran, but it was a minority. The vast majority of Muslims 
did not support that kind of thing. But if you could just paint someone as a Muslim sympathizer, oh, <laughs> you could try to cancel them. Conservatives, suppose conservatives got into this business. And it wasn't always right. And it's coming back to bite us now, big time. And I say us, I wasn't participating in that. I probably shouldn't use that pronoun. It's coming back to bite them. And, and yeah, is, there's concerning things about Islam, for sure. I'm not saying there isn't. Muslim Brotherhood is terrifying. I mean, I, they, they, they were probably behind the murder of Phil Haney earlier this year. He, and he knew what the Obama Justice Department was, was doing um, as far as their being in bed with Muslim Brotherhood types. It's concerning stuff. But that doesn't mean that anyone who ever was, grew up Muslim or has a, a Muslim uh, name, it doesn't mean that they were a terrorist. And there were people that I remember who thought that way. And now it's, it's coming back to, to bite the other side. If you can tar and feather someone as somehow proud of their ancestry, proud of their heritage, if they happen to be descendants of, of Europeans, you can do the same thing. Well, you're just a Klansman. You're just a neo-Nazi. You share something in common with them. You're both proud of your history, aren't you? In fact, my analogy of the Muslims doesn't even do this justice because this is way more absurd than that. But that's, that's what they're doing. Guys, this is more of a crystal knock. This isn't a Boston Tea Party. You are seeing a revolution before your eyes right now. And so what do you do? What do you do about it? Here's the advice that I have for you. This is the hope, if you will. A few things I want to remind you of. Number one, the Lord will build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Always keep that in your mind. Christ has made a promise about this. We can trust him. And it's not up to us ultimately. We do our best. And Christ is going to be the one to bring about the end result. Things may get very dark in this world. They are getting dark. Christ has promised to preserve his church. And don't be surprised if 95% of American Christianity isn't true Christianity. Don't let that shock you. But there still will be a remnant. This is how I pray. I pray that God will remember his elect. I pray that God will um, bring, bring about peace and help his elect survive what's coming and thrive and have families and live in peace as much as possible. I believe God is most likely judging this country right now. And, and all of those who want to look down their nose at the past and say how racist and sexist and horrible it was seem to forget the amount of children that have died as a result of abortion and seem to forget that they're the ones that want to usher in mass slavery. You want to talk about impersonal slavery. Look at socialism. and That's what they're ushering in. They profaned marriage. We, we, we're not... <laughs> Look at the entertainment that we, we look at in this country. We haven't made progress, not moral progress. We're, we're going back to the days of the barbarians. God has every right to judge us. He doesn't owe us anything just because we're Americans. Remember that. You may love this country. You may think it's this shining city on a hill. God doesn't owe this country anything. God's blessed this country despite despite ourselves in recent years. We've been, we've been on borrowed time, I think, for a while. That's just my opinion. But 
pray that God would remember his elect. And he promises that he will. He promises that he'll preserve the church. Also, look for opportunities to minister, real tangible ways to minister in your community to everyone. Don't, don't let this discourage you and put you in a place of depression. Uh, I, I'm saying that and I'm preaching that to myself as well. Make sure that you are involved with actual real people. COVID-19 has made that really hard. Remember that? Remember COVID-19? Like a week ago, everyone was talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's made it really hard. We live in a country where uh, it's, you know, it's illegal to go to church in some places, supposedly. Um, yet, uh, apparently rioting and breaking things is justice. But that just shows you where we're at. Minister to people. Get involved with real people, because you know what? A lot of the people that are rioting, they didn't grow up in good homes. They, they don't know. They don't have an example to follow. There's no hero that they can look to and say, he's the guy. She's the girl. Those are who I want to be like. Become that person. Become that person. I think it's fine to pray in precatory prayers on those who are fomenting this. David did it. I don't see why we shouldn't do it. So, so feel free to, to delve into some of that. Um, obviously, always praying for salvation at the same time. We want that to, we want revival to, to happen in this country, but it's going to have to start with the fear of God. There is no fear of God before the eyes of, of, of the people that are promoting this new religion. And last but not least, when you are talking to someone who is from another religion, like a cult, or, or just a, uh, another understanding of some kind. It's not Christianity. What do you do in those circumstances? You evangelize. You witness. You share the gospel. And right now we have another religion forming. Go back to the beginning of this video. Start thinking through the tenets of this new religion. Understand it as a new religion. And be able to do some apologetics with this new religion. Especially with those who claim to be Christians. Point out all the inconsistencies. Share with them the true gospel of grace through Jesus Christ for anyone and the absolving of all sins. Not the sins of someone else. Not the sins of a system. Personal sins. Because I guarantee you, the people that are involved in these corporate apologies and owning their privilege, so forth and so on, I bet they have actual sins in their life. I bet <laughs> how many people that claim to be Christians are looking at pornographic images and being entertained by things the Lord calls detestable. It's rotting their souls, and yet they're going to go apologize for something that a system, an impersonal system, or someone else did. It's a fake, it's a fake thing, guys. Confront real sin. The things that people actually do that are sinful. The focus of, of all the, the church and parachurch organizations could be on this fake stuff. You focus on the real stuff. And give real, lasting hope and the possibility of forgiveness and a right relationship with God. The assurance that if, if you repent and put your trust in Christ that you are going to be with him for eternity, give that hope to people because they need it right now. That's what the, I mean, I, I can't understand what the church is doing right now. And I say the church, I mean the big Eva. I don't understand it. This is the time for the true gospel. March into the crowds. I saw a street preacher the other day uh, preaching the Black Lives Matter protest group. You know who was arrested? The street preacher. 
<laughs> it's amazing what's happening out there. I commend those guys though. They, they knew what the truth was and they knew the cure to the problem. And so do we. So do we. Let that encourage you. Hey, God bless you. Thank you for listening and for your support. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big